I got it! When I first heard about Dave being trapped in a maze... One, two, three, four! I built a labyrinth. Can you believe it? Dave is trapped in a cardboard maze in his living room and he can't get out. Welcome to Dave Made a Minute, the podcast where a whole bunch of us are exploring the film Dave Made a Maze one minute at a time. The twist. Many of the participants have never seen the film. Some don't even know what film they're sampling. They get their minutes and they tackle them as they see fit. Here's your host from the Groundhog Day Project and Michael Myers Minute, Robert Black. Minute 2 ends the flash-forward to Dave's interview from minutes 45 to 47 and begins the animated title sequence. To tackle Minute 2, you've got, well, me again. As I said before, I didn't want to give opening or closing titles to anyone who hadn't seen the film. But I do have a guest, the film's producer, John Charles Meyer. You come home, there's a giant maze in your living room, you're like, what the? There's a giant maze in my living room. I've heard of people rearranging the furniture, but this is wackadoodle crazy. You give me a sense of that. This doesn't make any sense. It's like a fucking cocktail party in here. Can I get a few words from you before you go? Hello, listeners. Before we get to John Charles, I should tell you a little bit about Minute 2. Dave is in the middle of recognizing that deliberate spoilage for the story to come. He may be responsible for people dying in the maze he made. Minute 1 ended mid-sentence. I might be responsible for the people that. And now, Dave finishes the sentence. Died yesterday or today, I don't know what time it is, and if I am, seconds 9 through 12, he pauses, then I'm sorry. Second 14, Harry corrects Dave's use of tertiary when it should have been tertiarily. And he has the great interviewer line, tell me more about that. But Dave takes off his mic and leaves. And Diversion by the Equals plays as animated opening titles get underway. We see two-dimensional Dave kissing Annie goodbye, second 23. The doorknob is broken, second 25. But Dave is off to paint, second 27. And it's a close-up of his own eye, second 34. He's got a set of Japanese swords on a table, a keyboard which we see him playing badly, seconds 39 to 46. Then he breaks the keyboard into pieces, and those pieces become origami birds. Second 48, he's sitting making more origami birds. A board by the front door says, fix front door. Second 50, Dave gets mad, and one bird comes out red instead of black or white. We zoom into the red bird, which spirals into a transition. Second 56, to a saw blade, as Dave tries his hand at carpentry. Minute 2 ends, as a carpentry accident breaks a lamp. And Dave looks panicked. But how about that talk with the film's producer, John Charles Meyer? How did you get involved with uh, Dave Made a Mace? So director Bill Watterson and I have known each other for 30 years. We played in a crappy band together in high school. Rock band. uh, Cover band. And um, we worked on a handful of projects before of much, much more humble scale web series and little shorts and stuff. And uh, he really was aspiring to direct and I had just started getting going on producing and he gave me a quick pitch for a story idea that a friend of his, Steve Sears, had started working on about a guy who gets lost inside the cardboard fort he builds in his living room. And I said, I love it. I want to do it. Find me a script or get me a script. And a few months later they did. And we were off and running. Took about five years from that point to get it made. Wow. Yeah. 
It's a long process. And this was a few years ago now also that it was made too, right? Because it took a lot of finish up. Yeah, our, our world premiere was in January 2017. Production, the filming, the primary filming took place in May of 2015. Now, as producer, you, you're not involved day to day with the production, right? Yes, the production would not have happened. If I hadn't been there, uh, truly, I was the first person in, last person out every single day. I don't want to break my arm, pat myself on the back, but we had no line producer. We had no production manager. We had a handful of PAs, uh, most of whom were working on the art department the entire time they were there. Uh, I mean, I was the only person on the ground handling anything with logistics, contracts, vendors, caterers, payroll, time cards, anything, insurance. Uh, there was nobody else doing it. So, yes. This may seem like a weird question as a follow-up, but why do you only get credited as, you get credited just as producer, right? As opposed to executive producer? And not line producer or production, or, yeah. Um, on IMDb, I am actually credited for line producer and production manager, uh, really just as a distinction from some of the rest of the team. Oh, okay. Um, I didn't bother in the credits just because it seems sort of redundant and silly. Oh, okay. I mean, in the end credits of the film. Um, I mean, ultimately, producer is a more desirable title than either line producer or production manager. So while it's true that I was doing all three jobs, it's sort of like saying you're president of the United States and you also, you know, do your own dishes. Who cares? <laughs> so you already had the big one. Right. Um, what was, I don't know, the biggest short-term emergency kind of problem that you had to deal with? Um, it's, that's actually a pretty easy question to answer. Uh, it's been asked in different ways, but on this film, the single biggest emergency at all times was, which was a constant emergency, was keeping the art department ahead of the camera team. The art department had a gargantuan task, not only because they were understaffed, underfunded, underpaid, but also because we were working in a very small space. So even if they had had the personnel and the time and the money to get everything done well in advance, we wouldn't have had any place to store it. This movie has 26 sets, which we built from scratch, and the space that we were shooting in only had room to hold about two or three of them at a time. So the camera team would be working on one side of the studio, and the art department would be working on the other side of the studio, and when they rolled camera, the art department just had to stop what they were doing. And as soon as camera team was done with whatever set they were using, we destroyed it on camera for a, a little bit of a montage at the end of the film. I shouldn't probably say that. That's a little bit of a spoiler. And uh, and then we switched the camera team over to the set that our department was hopefully just then finishing building. Um, it usually worked that way, but once or twice we had issues where production just kind of ground to a halt for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, in one case about four hours, because we just couldn't keep the art department ahead of them. So that was a constant source of stress for ev everybody, basically. What was your role in that? You're already a producer, production manager. Sure. Well, I mean, production manager, essentially, that is my job, is just to make sure that one step is in front of the other. But, you know, to a large degree, you also trust the people who are heading the various departments to execute what they're supposed to execute. Like I said, the art department was understaffed, underfunded, and not given enough time to do what we asked them to do. But the art director, Jeff White, uh, and his team, you know, it, it was their job, essentially, to stay ahead of the camera team. And if there was some reason why they couldn't do that, you know, they might come to me or they might say, we need more bodies or we need more hands or we need more whatever. Uh, and I would try to make that happen. 
But, you know, to a large degree, it's trusting that, that the people who are heading the various teams are doing what they're supposed to be doing, even if it's, even if you're asking too much of them. <laughs> yeah, building a set on the spot is a lot. Right. I mean, we did build for a solid month before production started. We had four weeks in another warehouse uh, where we built the entire apartment. So the apartment set that begins the movie was not shot on location. That was constructed inside the right. studio. And then the walls of that apartment then became the walls of the maze as the movie progresses. Uh, so the apartment was built almost in its entirety before we started shooting and then just assembled the day before we, we rolled cameras. The cardboard maze elements, a lot of them were not made until we actually started rolling cameras, and they were just made as we needed them. And sometimes that very day. <laughs> Many times yeah. that very day. <laughs> Probably more often than not that very day. Some of the more complicated things, the, there was a, a flat king and queen uh, that were made well in advance. The minotaur head was made weeks in advance, but the rooms of the maze, the walls themselves, were very frequently made on the day or, or the day before. Less about your job, more just your preference. What's your favorite thing that was that's in this movie, like in terms of the design? Or I love the perspective room. <laughs> it really came out just beautifully. Major props to our cinematographer, John Bull, for that. Uh, he really knew how to execute that. Also, the zoetrope was an incredible technical challenge, and also the very last thing we filmed. <laughs> we filmed it after we had been accepted to our first festival, <laughs> which is a little a little nerve-wracking. Yeah. But so the art department, I mean, rather the art director, Jeff White, and the cinematographer, John Bowl, the two of them collaborated and sort of talked through how this was going to work. And not only did it work as they told us it would, but it did so in such a beautifully janky, wobbly, half-assed, cardboard, hand-built way that I just love that moment in the film. I, I think a lot of people let it sort of pass them by and don't process how complicated and how involved it was to create those, I don't know, 20 seconds of, of film. But knowing what went into it, that's definitely one of my favorite moments in the film. Was that practical? Oh, yeah, entirely. It's a, it's a working zoetrope. So if you think of the turn of the 19th century barrels that had little slits in them yeah. and you would spin the barrel and there'd be like a horse going over a jump or somebody running on a track or something and it would just be the same image re repeat itself over and over. That's what that is. Uh, it's not a barrel with slits. It's rather a bunch of little figurines arranged in a pattern along a circle that spins. And then the DP sets the camera to a specific frame rate and it only captures an image at the exact right moment to capture each figurine, and it looks like it's a moving image. Where's the weirdest place you found a bread roll? <laughs> uh, I don't think I was quite as intimately familiar with that whole charade <laughs> as uh, perhaps Lauren was. I mean, I was aware of it going on, but I was hunched over a computer most of the time rather than joining in the reindeer fun <laughs> games. Uh, hi, Jinx. Uh, yeah, Adam Bush, uh, one of our cast members, and Nick Thune, and I think several of the crew members got real kicks out of hiding dinner rolls, kind of hard, old, stale dinner rolls in various places around the set and in the kitchen and in people's wardrobe. And yeah, that got to be a thing. Yeah. I, I couldn't tell you where the craziest thing was, what find, place to find one was, because I, like I said, I wasn't terribly privy to it. For this podcast i don't know if you know too much of the details but some people were getting minutes of the film without having context of the whole film right yeah it's a really cool concept i told them 
I'm like, this will be weird, but if you see a bread roll, let me know. <laughs> no, to my knowledge, there is not one in the actual film. That would be quite a coup by someone, it's, especially when you consider I've probably seen the film 50 or 60 times now, so I'm pretty confident there are no dinner rolls. If there is, these people will find it, because they're used to looking at movies very closely one minute at a time. Yes, well, <laughs> please please tell us. I'd like to know. Yeah, so there, some people know the movie. I don't think anyone I gave it to had seen the movie. That's both disheartening and heartening at the same time. I love that more people are seeing it. I hate that people still don't know it. Well, I had one one guy in particular, he had literally just checked it out of the library to watch. Hmm. And he's like, should I watch it and then do my minutes? Or do my minutes and then watch it? I'm like, it's up to you. Just say what you did when you record. Right. And so I, I, I think they'll all watch it afterward. They're just... Prospect of going in blind intrigued them. Right. Yeah. No. I, I, like I said, I think it's a cool concept. So you weren't part of the bread roll thing. What? What was the? What's the best onset story you have? Um. I mean, I think one of the anecdotes that I've related at a bunch of festivals and screenings and whatnot is that Bill Watterson and I, the director and I, um, went out looking for cardboard well in advance of production, and we're very much kidding ourselves about how much cardboard it was going to take to make this movie. <laughs> we had started off saying, you know, emailing friends and saying, save your cereal boxes and shit. I mean, it just, that was silly. It was not going to cut it. We went through over 30,000 square feet of cardboard on this shoot. Um, <laughs> I had seen a museum display, a museum artist on display, who made really interesting use of cardboard spindles, which are used by apparel manufacturers. And I thought that might be something that would be interesting for our art department to use. And ultimately, they did use it in the stalagmite and stalactite room and a handful of other places, I guess. Anyway, so I went out looking for that specifically, and I called a couple of apparel manufacturers, and American Apparel said, yeah, sure, come on down, we've got a bunch of those. Uh, <laughs> actually, he said, uh, we go through about 1,000 a day, when do you need them? I said, not for 30 days, and he's like, well, I can give you 30,000. I was like, I don't think I need 30,000 of them, but okay. <laughs> so we went down and picked them up, Bill and I, and we just happened to have a U-Haul truck because we were going to pick up some wood and other other construction materials that day. And we pulled up on the empty U-Haul truck and the guy let us onto the floor and he said, well, here's your box of spindles, but if you want any of this stuff, help yourself. And it was pallet after pallet after pallet stacked eight feet high with perfectly uniform discarded cardboard in like 10 or 20 different iterations, different thicknesses, different corrugation, wow. different looks. It was amazing. And he said, yeah, take whatever you want. And we filled a box truck and drove away from American Apparel like we'd committed murder. I mean, it, like we, we couldn't believe how lucky we were. <laughs> Three weeks later, the art director comes to me and he's like, hey, dude, we're going to run out of cardboard. <sighs> so American Apparel allowed me to come back for a small second run, but they weren't quite as keen this second time. They kind of made it clear that this was it and I didn't get enough. And so then we had to find another source and by the grace of something above solar city happened to be located right next door to where we started shooting the film. And I happened to be a customer. So I poked my head in the door and I said, do you guys throw out any cardboard? And they were like, Oh yeah, we got a big dumpster out back. All we throw in it is cardboard. Help yourself anytime. And so for the remainder of the shoot for another three weeks, every single day of mine began as producer with dumpster diving for additional cardboard for the production. <laughs> Not exactly Hollywood glamour, but uh, no. in, in all honesty, in some ways, it was but one of the more enjoyable parts of my day because it meant not being hunched over in front of a computer and dealing with angry agents or contracts or vendors or what have you. 
And you were doing that by yourself, or um, typically I'd get a couple of art department people to help me pull, uh, help me uh, carry the cardboard over because it was pretty unwieldy. These were giant sheets of cardboard that they were yeah. throwing away, so it was easier to have a couple people carry it. But most days I would go and do the dumpster diving myself, just because I didn't really want to ask somebody whom I was paying way too little to begin with to <laughs> jump into a dumpster. I mean, it was a cardboard only dumpster, and there were a few times when a couple other people got in. Bill got in once or twice. I know, uh, I know, our PA Ali got in once or twice. Um, but usually it was just me. You, you got to do what you got to do. Other than the apartment at the beginning, in the very end, everything's covered in cardboard. So. Everything is cardboard. Yeah. How many pounds did you say? Um, the pallets at American Apparel, I mean, there were probably 20 or 30 pallets there. We probably only took about, I don't know, six or seven worth. But a really rough back of the envelope math estimate after production was done is that we went through a little more than 30,000 square feet of cardboard. And how did you get rid of it? I mean, um, amazingly, the dumpster at Solar City. You just kept putting it back in there? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And they and they invited us to do so. I mean, admittedly, we were using a lot of hot glue guns, and so there were there was hot glue and sometimes paint on some of the cardboard, but they didn't seem to think that that was an issue, and they recycle it all. I mean, it all went to a, some other vendor who came and picked up the dumpster once a week, which also made the timing of dumpster diving sometimes dicey. I would have to get there before the guy came and picked it up, otherwise I'd have an empty dumpster and no more cardboard to work with for the day. But yeah, we recycled, I don't know, I want to say 80% of that set. We even recycled some of the wood. A buddy of mine took a bunch of the wood and made a bed headboard out of it. It's kind of cool. Did you keep anything? We have tons of uh, props and art pieces left over from the film. We have all of the original hand puppets. We have most of the figurines from the zoetrope. We have some smaller pieces like gears and the queen and some other items. But as far as, you know, saving something for myself, yeah. not really. I have one thing of cardboard flowers that uh, was in the perspective room that's in a vase in my house. Uh, that's about it. Huh. Everything else we've saved sort of for posterity and perhaps someday down the road for an auction with fans. I mean, we've monkeyed with the idea of, of making a sequel of this movie, and that could be one way to try to help start financing for it, though... I think everybody involved would agree that we're not going to make the second movie if it ever comes to pass for the same amount of money that we made the first one for because it was hell. <laughs> so we would re need to raise quite a bit more money for the second one. Yeah. Uh, and raising money is not the most fun part of the jo job, for sure. What was the overall budget for this? We don't say, but I can tell you that Slamdance does not premiere movies in competition that were made for more than a million dollars. So, okay. And that was our world premiere. So it was six figures. Wow. And how big was the overall, I mean, I've seen the credits, it's not that big, but like the crew. And um, if you include volunteers, well, we had a lot of people come and fold origami for us, and even some people send origami from farther away, uh, and we had a handful of volunteers show up to just paint sets for a day or, or help the art department, what have you. Um, all told, including post-production personnel, my estimate is that about 254 people touched this film. The paid crew was somewhere in the neighborhood of 110, 120, and then we had 17 cast members as well. Yeah, so fairly small scale, but full of big ideas. Small scale, but difficult to fit into a budget of six figures. <laughs> 100 people working for a month or more for less than a million dollars does not leave a lot of money for anything else. No. Hence the dumpster diving. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, our art department budget was shockingly small. I mean, for, for su supplies, I think we spent maybe $11,000, all told, on all set construction, uh, wardrobe, everything. 
hot glue. Hot glue. We went through over 3,000 hot glue sticks. <laughs> that one was easy to count because we bought them by the box. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you know how many. Yep. What else should people know about De Minimis? I mean, I think one of the things that I think also Bill, the director, really likes to impress upon people is that this really was a labor of love. As as unpleasant as a lot of my job was on set and leading up to production, it's nonetheless a movie that I fell in love with on day one, and I still love to this day. Uh, it has been an incredible source of frustration many, many times. It has been an incredible source of stress many, many times. But... It's just such a weird, unusual film that's... I, I shouldn't even say unusual. I honestly think it's a unique film. I don't think there's anything else like it. And for that, I love it. And I hope that other people will love it as well. And then I could probably disarm all the traps. And then we can, we can finish this maze. Who is with me? That was me and producer John Charles Meyer talking Dave Made a Mace. Next time on Dave Made a Minute, it's me one more time finishing up the opening titles and getting back to the real world in Minute 3 and talking with set dresser and prop master Lauren Schell. And you'll see where I learned about the bread rolls. Thank you for listening to Dave Made a Minute. Intro dialogue snippets were taken from Dave Made a Maze, directed by Bill Watterson, written by Bill Watterson and Steve Sears, and produced by John Charles Meyer. Intro music is Diversion by The Equals, featured in the film Dave Made a Maze, and Life Cycle of a Match by Parvis Decree. Outro music is Leaving This Godforsaken Place, and Her Presence is Strong Here by Parvis Decree. Dave Made a Minute is a production of Lemming Drop Studio and all other featured podcast producers. You can find more content at lemmingdrops.com. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Dave Made a Minute. If you like what you hear, throw us a rating and review on your podcatcher of choice, and check out all of the participants' other shows to spread the love around. Again, thank you for listening. As long as we're all working together, it's going to be fine. It's going to be great. I need you to notify the families of everyone who died here today. Totally. Wait, what?